0: The processed food is is the cause of the problem, and because they they've designed addictive foods, and so humans are addicted to eating these foods, which have got very little nutritional value, and we're eating because we're addicted to the foods, rather than that they are helping our bodies. And you know, in the past million years or so, two million years, we ate foods that we'd worked out are healthy for us and allow us to live long, healthy lives. And now we eat foods that are highly addictive because that's the the toxic food environment in which we live. So yes, it's big food is the cause of the problem. Hi, I'm Pete McCall and welcome to this episode of
1: the All About Fitness podcast. A voice you heard in the beginning is South African doctor and exercise physiologist, Tim Noakes. Before I get into the full introduction for Dr. Noakes, I want to take a moment to say thank you and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, anytime I teach a workshop, anytime I, I do a workout, teach a, a class or do a workout with a client, or anytime I record a podcast for that matter, I recognize the fact that you're giving me some of your time and, and time is our most precious asset that we have access to. So to, for that, I say thank you for giving me your time and I try to deliver content, try to produce content that's gonna help you learn how to use exercise or the components of fitness, to enhance your quality of life. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do with this interview today. And actually to be 100% honest, this is my final rerun interview. For the month of December 2020, I've been putting up old content. I had changed platforms at one point. Some of my old interviews went away. And so this month, I decided to just post some of my old content and, and actually kind of thinking about it, I, I post a couple of interviews with my colleague, Fabio Camana, and Fabio had grown up in, uh, in Zambia and in South Africa. And kind of staying on that theme, I decided to rerun this interview with, with Dr. Noakes, who has sort of a similar history. Now, now, Tim, or Dr. Noakes, is well known. He's been a very controversial figure because he's been promoting a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet. He's actually been taken to court a couple different times, and he's won his court cases by using science to back up his position. Dr. Noakes has written a number of different books, One of the books we discussed today is Waterlogged. That's the premise that we might be overhydrating. You know, we hear all these commercials about hydrate, 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 take this sports drink, do whatever. But in Waterlogged, Dr. Noakes goes to the science of why that might not be necessary. And we talk about that a little bit today. Now, Dr. Noakes is also known for his books, The Real Meal Revolution and Challenging Beliefs. And what he wants people to do is to think differently about diet, to think differently about nutrition. that's why i have him on as a guest today now the kind of the irony of this is i interviewed dr noakes this interview was recorded in november of 2017. it was actually recorded when i was at disneyland with my family so think about that as we have this conversation And, and this conversation really is based around the fact that carbohydrates too many carbohydrates especially processed and high sugar carbohydrates may be bad for us and i had this interview then i walked over to disneyland and if anybody who's ever been into Disney park before, and I'm a shareholder in Disney, I, you know, my kids love Disney products. Disneyland is not the place you go for low carbohydrate anything. So that's kind of the irony about the, this interview and kind of a very, very interesting point about this conversation. But in this interview today, Dr. Noakes goes into the science of why we need to think about doing our diets differently. And just so you know that, that his heart's in the right place, for all the books that he writes, he puts the proceeds towards what he calls, towards his Noakes Foundation. So he's not writing books out there to line his own pockets. Dr. Noakes does all of his work to try to promote and try to get more education out there so we learn how to use nutrition correctly. We learn about exercise and we learn how to make it a priority in, my, in, in our lives. Not only a priority in my life, but a priority of all of our lives. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do with the podcast. I'm trying to help us all learn how to use exercise to enhance our quality of life. Selfishly, I do the podcast because I enjoy having these conversations and I want to share them with you. If you like the All About Fitness Podcast, if you enjoy what you're hearing here, two things. One, feel free to share this with your friends. Nothing makes me feel better than when people share share the podcast on social media and tag me. It lets me know that it's having an effect and that you value the information by sharing it with your friends and by sharing it with your community. So please, anytime there's an episode you enjoy, please feel free to share it, blog, social media, whatever. The second thing you can do to support the podcast is very simple and doesn't cost you anything. Please go to my website, PeteMcCallFitness.com. That's PeteMcCallFitness.com. There'll be a link down below. If you go to my website and sign up for the mailing list, you'll get a free chapter from my book, Smarter Workouts. Not only will you get a chapter, but you'll get a bodyweight workout that you can do anywhere you can take your body. I don't over, I'm not gonna over spam your your email box, but I am gonna put out one or two emails a month of blogs, information, exercise how-tos that you can use to not only use exercise to enhance your quality of life, but to learn how to use exercise to slow down and manage the aging process. And a big component of that is nutrition. That's exactly why I have this conversation with Dr. Noakes. That is exactly why I'm rerunning it. So you can learn a little bit more about nutrition and the role that nutrition plays and having a healthy, high-quality, active lifestyle. So here we go with South African doctor and exercise physiologist Tim Noakes. Fitness. I'm here today with Dr. Timothy Noakes from South Africa. Do you prefer uh, Dr. Noakes, or can I call you Tim, or do you have a, do you have a preference, can I sir?
0: Call me Tim, please, Pete. That'll be perfect.
1: Absolutely, uh, Tim. Can you give us, uh, give our listeners, kind of a little background uh, about you, about what it is that you do, and what you've done in, in the exercise and uh, in medical space.
0: Sure, I'm actually retired now, I'm 68 years old, but I've had a really exciting career. I first studied medicine at the University of Cape Town, graduated in 1974, very quickly realized that I was more interested in health than in disease, and also more interested in science. So I went directly from my medical training into a PhD program, completed that in, in 1981, and was asked to start teaching sports science at the University of Cape Town. So from 1981 to, 19, to, sorry, to 2015, I was involved in teaching of sports science at the University of Cape Town. And during that time, we developed a couple of novel ideas, particularly that the the brain regulates exercise performance rather than the legs. I also was involved in teaching people that you can overdrink during exercise and get into trouble. And then of course, I was a great promoter of high carbohydrate diets for athletes because we were absolutely convinced that If you wanted to perform your best in any sport, you had to eat lots of carbohydrate but then Fortunately for me in 2010, I realized I was completely wrong on that one. And so (laughs) I changed my own uh, diet to one of a low carbohydrate high fat diet and then began to promote the idea and that led to great problems for me with my profession because they excommunicated me <laughs> and uh, that involved a 3 year legal trial for disgraceful conduct for prescribing or suggesting that that mothers should wean their children onto higher fat diets which is traditionally of course what has always happened and actually is the South African dietary guidelines but uh, because I'd angered the South African dietitians so much because they were losing patients or clients who were now going to fix their own health because they read the other book I wrote, Real Meal Revolution, and they were eating real foods and benefiting. So I ran foul of the dieticians, and this led to this trial, which fortunately ended in April, and I won 10-0, the rulings. And I've just finished the book about that, and the book comes out this week and it 's called Law of Nutrition, and that describes what 's happened to me over the last six years and the reasons why I continue to promote a high fat low carbohydrate diet and so, so that 's the subtitle of my career
1: <laughs> well, and I think that 's extremely interesting because, as I was doing a little bit of research uh, Tim on, on your background, you know it, one of the things that that caught my eye was in an article where during medical school, you were told that i 'm um, looking for my line here that that during medical training, weren't you told that exercise was dangerous? And, and why is oh, that? Su- and why is that such a fallacy? I mean, how did that? How was your? What was your reaction to that when you heard that?
0: You know, that's really interesting because that was my my department here, and I was I remember giving a lecture once, and the professor got up afterwards, a cardiologist, and said, "Doctor Nakes, you're dangerous. You're taking all these people with heart disease, and you're making them run up the mountain, and you're going <laughs> to kill all of them." <laughs> well. Well, that didn't quite happen. But I mean, that was the that was the thinking at the day. So you're quite right, you know, 20 years later, or sorry, 40 years later, we wouldn't think that that was even even conceivable that people had said that. And I think in 40 years time, we're going to say the same about this, this nutrition advice. Excuse me, I know this is an exciting interview, but I'm gonna break in for one moment and tell you about
1: some exciting news. At the All About Fitness podcast, I am never gonna put content behind a paywall. However, if you become a supporter of the podcast, you will get access to exclusive content that I am not gonna make available anywhere else. So here's the deal. You can become a fan of the All About Fitness podcast by purchasing one of my eBooks, Dynamic Anatomy, Exercise for the Fountain of Youth, or Functional Core Training. Each eBook is $7, and if you purchase an eBook, you become a fan of the All About Fitness podcast. If you purchase a workout, I have a dumbbell strength training workout, a kettlebell training workout, and I have a functional core training workout. Each program is eight weeks long. It includes the workouts, it includes metabolic conditioning, and they include active recovery workouts. It's a great deal. Each workout is $12. By purchasing a workout for $12, you become a supporter of the All About Fitness podcast. To become a super fan of All About Fitness, you purchase a bundle. I have different bundles available. I have bundles of ebooks. I have the Dynamic Anatomy ebook and webinar bundle. I have the Functional Core Training and Dynamic Anatomy ebook bundle. Bundles are $19. So those are the three price levels. You become a fan by purchasing an ebook for $7. You become a supporter by purchasing a workout for $12. Or you become a super fan by purchasing a bundle for $19. I don't want to take advertising dollars. I want this to be a listener supported podcast. By supporting the All About Fitness podcast, and not only do you get great episodes, I try to put out four to five full-length interviews each month, but by supporting the podcast, you'll get access to exclusive content that'll help you learn how to use exercise to enhance your quality of life. Thanks for your time. Now let's get back to the interview. If we were wrong, if you were in medical school in, in the late 1960s, early 1970s, and medical mm-hmm. was, school was saying exercise is dangerous, and you have people now you know, pushing one type of diet over another, it, aren't we going to learn more as we evolve about, about how the body adapts to various uh, the various inputs?
0: Yes, indeed. I think what frustrates me is, you know why we have universities, is because we don't know everything and we should be trying to push boundaries. And what I discovered in my own experience over the last five years is that nutrition is the single most important determinant of our health. And we can explain most of the chronic ill health that we have, be it heart disease, diabetes, cancer, dementia, or even the autoimmune diseases on the basis of what we're eating. These diseases didn't exist in traditional populations eating traditional foods. And and no one seems to quite put the the two facts together, that it was the, introdu- the introduction of grains, cereals and grains, 18,000 years ago or 12,000 years ago that caused the first problem. And the second problem was when we upped our carbohydrate intake uh, in ni- after the 1970s. And before that, we were extremely healthy, but now we're in all sorts of trouble, and no one seems to be prepared to say, actually, it's the food we're eating that's the problem. Instead, my profession is so paternalistic that we say, how can the doctors be wrong? It must be the patient that is wrong. And so we blame the patient for the ill health instead of saying, well, let's try and find out what the real causes are.
1: Well, I, and I th- do you think that it has anything to do with the, uh, the, the influence, the, the monetary influence of big industry of like what, who is it? Um, I don't know if it was Eric Schlosser, but it was another, another author who calls it the industrial food complex. Do you think they have a big, uh, big influence on kind of what we consider proper nutrition?
0: Oh, absolutely. And the processed food is, is the cause of the problem. And because they've designed addictive foods. And so humans are addicted to eating these foods, which have got very little nutritional value. And we're eating because we're addicted to the foods rather than that they are helping our bodies. And in the past million years or so, two million years, we ate foods that we'd worked out are healthy for us and allow us to live long, healthy lives. And now we eat foods that are highly addictive because that's the, the toxic food environment in which we live. So, yes, it's big food is the cause of the problem. And now
1: and I, what I think is very interesting with, with your, your work, Tim, is, is that you're in South Africa. So you are very close to a lot of indigenous populations that are still probably relatively close to the diet that they've been following for a few centuries. How have you seen as more kind of, quote unquote, modern diets have been introduced? How has that really changed some of the cultures and some of the indigenous peoples in the continent?
0: Yeah, you're quite correct. Um, there are very few hunter-gatherers left in, in, this, in, South, in Africa, but those populations that are remain healthy and, or as healthy or healthier than ourselves. The Masai is a classic example in Kenya and Tanzania that they are extremely healthy and they live on a completely carnivorous diet. And the Samburai are exactly the same. In my own country, what happened was that the Nguni tribes, which led to all the, the the black South Africans, came to came to Southern Africa 1,000 years ago, and they were cattle pastoralists, much like the Messiah. And over the last 150, 200 years, the cattle were decimated by a whole bunch of things, including a, a, a rinderpest, which is a virus that killed the cattle. And so what happened was traditionally... People eating meat and dairy produce were then forced onto, onto this diet that we currently eat, the industrial diet. And as a consequence, South Africans are amongst the, the fattest and most diabetic in the world. And I live in Cape Town, which is one of the centers for the diabetes epidemic. And when I graduated in medicine in 1974, no, Diabetes was not the disease it is today. It is now absolutely epidemic in this in this part of the country And the, the, what's changed? It's increased sugar intake and increased processed food intake That's that's really what's happened and, and looking around at people now. It's frightening to see how unhealthy The vast majority of people are in this country Sorry, I'm just gonna cut in here one more time. I'll be very brief I want to remind you that I'm doing hit
1: at home workouts Hit is high-intensity interval training. These are 30-minute workouts. All you need is a set of dumbbells, a little bit of space, and a device that can connect to the Internet. And you can join me on Wednesdays and Fridays at 12 noon Pacific. That's Wednesdays and Fridays, 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, other times in between or in other time zones. I broadcast live. It's a great workout. Just about 30 minutes, you'll get strength training, core conditioning, and, of course, high-intensity interval training. If you work hard, I guarantee you'll be burning more than 300 calories in 30 minutes. That's Hit at Home, exclusively on Homeroom Fit, Wednesdays and Fridays, 12 noon Pacific. There's a link down below in the show notes. You already listened to the podcast. Now come join me for a workout and we can sweat together. Let's get back to the interview. And and so did that lead to your book, The High Fat Revolution, about where you promote a high fat diet? And what what advantages do does a you know a diet that's that's rich in in healthy fats? What advantages does it have for the body?
0: Well, I, the benefit is for people who are like me are insulin resistant. And so, if you're insulin resistant, when you take in carbohydrate, your body can't assimilate or metabolize it normally, and you have to over secrete the hormone insulin to drive the carbohydrate out of the bloodstream, and then ultimately to convert it into fat. And so if you're insulin resistant, you over-secrete insulin all the time. And as a consequence, insulin has certain other effects because there are some tissues on which insulin overacts. And for example, that then leads to arterial disease and dementia and probably cancer. So those are all linked to high-carbohydrate diets in people who are insulin resistant. And so, as soon as you take a person who's insulin resistant and you get their blood insulin concentrations down to the normal range, they immediately benefit because they can start burning the fat instead of storing carbohydrate as fat. And because the insulin levels are low, all the the inflammation and the damage that's been occurring in the body can start to to heal. So the key piece of advice I give is that if you are insulin resistant. Eating carbohydrates is highly toxic for you, and the less carbohydrates you eat, the healthier you will be, and the longer you will live. And that,
1: see, I think that's that's important information. Is that and is that also referred to as a ketogenic diet?
0: Yeah, indeed. The the high fat. Once you cut carbohydrates and you bring your insulin down, then you can go into ketogenic state or ketotic state, and there are varying degrees of ketosis, and some people are more ketotic than others when eating less carbohydrate. But for myself, I I have to go down to about 25 grams of carbohydrate to be significantly ketotic. And then I've got to go and run as well and exercise vigorously. So I'm quite resistant to ketosis, even though I eat very little carbohydrate. So again, we, we all differ but i think the key is just to get the insulin down and that that really starts to make you healthy
1: and and that's one thing that's one constant theme of of my podcast is that that not everybody's going to respond to any research or any understanding the same way and that it, you know it does involve some trial and error correct for people to kind of identify what works for them
0: oh absolutely you know people say you know, this diet is a one-size-fits-all. But the reality is the current dietary advice we have that you meant to eat low-fat, lots of cereals and grains, heart-healthy, prudent, balanced diet in moderation. That is a one-size-fits-all. Unfortunately, it doesn't fit very many people. The beauty of the the Banting or the low-carb ketogenic diet is that it fits so many more people because it, certainly in the United States, at least 60% of the people are insulin-resistant. And increasingly more people are becoming more insulin resistance as they age. So this is a diet that's going to help at least sixty percent of the people in North America. and in my country, I'd say it's even higher, maybe seventy eighty percent of the people
1: and I think that's what, what you don't know and what I didn't tell you Tim, is I'm actually right now i'm I'm in Anaheim, California, with my family at Disneyland. and I have yeah. to tell if you want to see um, an unhealthy population, Oh my goodness! And you can walk around, and and it's just—it's amazing the toxicity that people are putting into their body. Does does exercise have any? is, Is it really? Is is diet really a key driver of disease in the body? And is there anything that exercise can do to overcome that?
0: That's a great question because you know we use the the statement that you can't outrun a bad diet. And what that means is if you are insulin-resistant and you're eating a high-carbohydrate diet, you have to get the insulin down, and exercise isn't going to do it for you. So, you know, I've been profoundly insulin-resistant. I ran 70 marathons or ultra-marathons, and I still developed type 2 diabetes. And I now look back and realize that the running helped a bit because I burnt, burnt off some of that carbohydrate, but I was never healthy. Whereas if I would switched to a high-fat diet to 35 years ago, instead of switching to the high carbohydrate diet, I would have been profoundly much more healthy and I would also have been able to run much better. And my running would have continued at a higher level for much longer. But I didn't understand it at the time. And so I was feeding the devil, which was my insulin resistance, with this high carbohydrate diet. (coughs) Excuse me. And, and,
1: And I want to segue into that because you've done a lot of work on, you just mentioned that you do ultra endurance. And one of the reasons I was interested in speaking with you is you're recently featured in an article in Men's Health, talking about kind of the the ultra, the extremes at which the human body can push itself. And have you really? I mean, what is the extremes? I mean, what because we constantly see people challenging them, themselves to go harder. And as an ultra marathoner yourself, what what do you think the upper limits are to human performance?
0: Yeah, I think that the longer the event, the more the brain is involved and. Whereas at high intensity exercise of short duration, it's not really your choice. The the biology directs you. So we developed the central governor model of exercise, which predicts that the brain regulates your exercise performance to make sure you finish without dying. That's the key. And within that context, we do know that the, there are biological limits to what we can do for example you know you can't sprint 100 meters in three seconds like a lion can <laughs> because we don't have the biology for it we have the muscles are not strong enough but probably what limits current speed in humans is the hamstring would rupture if you run too fast the the hamstring has to slow down your foot before it hits the ground and that is takes a lot of power in the hamstring and and it's obviously clear that if you had unlimited power in the hamstrings you would run faster but you'd probably rupture your either the muscle or you'd rupture the the femur the bone in the in the thigh so that those are physical limits but once you start to exercise over a day or two then it's clear that the brain becomes far more important regulator and And the the discipline of keeping yourself going and having a goal and thinking it's valuable and keep going, that that becomes a factor. So our more recent research with with the central governor model shows that in exercise, the battle begins in your mind. And you have to decide, gosh, I'm suffering. What's it worth me continuing? Is it really worth all this effort to come third or fourth? Whereas the athlete coming first never asks that question because he's benefiting <laughs> and he's going to win anyway. And so we now know that there's the, these mental processes get involved. And, in fact, what becomes the predictor of your performance is your emotional response. And it's how you feel about the event and how important it is to you. By, the, by, by that I mean how do you feel about it? What's your emotion? Are you feeling great? And that's why the best runners and the best athletes are really enjoying what they're doing. And uh, that's because you need that emotion to be successful but then you also have to have this rational thinking that actually I'm prepared to put up with all this pain because it's worth it and at and the end of the day the, the physiology sets a limit but how close you get to that limit is determined by your emotion that you express during the race i.e. if you're positive about it and secondly how do you battle with this to to justify continuing even though it's hurting?
1: And and that that's because what I read is that you suggested that fatigue is an emotion. So if people mm. if people can and what you're saying to to understand you is that you're saying if people can become comfortable with that fatigue, then if they are an endurance athlete, they'll see more success.
0: Yeah, correct. And and we did find in these experiments that the. the the winning athletes actually suffer less than the guys coming second and third. Because they've got the positive affect, they, they interpret the, the, the exercises being less demanding on them. And so they enjoy it more. And they continue to enjoy it right through to the finish. Whereas the people who come second and third, there's a point near the end of the race, two-thirds through the race, where they start questioning whether it's worthwhile continuing and their mood changes. Or conversely, if they get passed by another athlete, the mood changes, and that's the end of it. Their physiology fails thereafter. So those are those are systems where where the physiology isn't the limiting factor. It's it's the emotion of the event that that, that determines the outcome.
1: Now, have you looked at any anything correlating to like the flow states in, in terms yes. of in terms? So is there a, is like a flow? If you're winning, if you're one of the top three in your event and you're doing an endurance event, does that push you over into what, what's called the, the flow state? And how does that affect performance?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think to be the winner, you have to be in the flow state. And, then, and that probably is the outcome or the, the key determinant of the outcome. And we haven't yet really got a way to measure flow during laboratory experiments, but we're working on it. But I, I absolutely agree with you that the athlete in flow, it's just so easy. And you don't really. Time just passes so quickly, and you don't have any of these doubts about your performance. What's really interesting is that flow—the easiest way to get into flow—is to be involved in an activity that's going to kill you <laughs> if you don't. <laughs> so, so there's evidence that people who do activities that are really taxing and which at which you risk your lives, they get into flow instantly, and they don't think like the rest of us. They're not thinking about these things. They're just going through the motions, and they just—it's automatic pilot. If you can get yourself on an automatic pilot, then your chances of winning are much, much greater.
1: And I mean, down in, down in South Africa, obviously, you have a, a exposure to a bunch of extremes in terms of environment, and you know, everybody from surfers to runners. And that's—it's interesting because upcoming, I will be uh, interviewing a Professor uh, Dr. Chiksimihi, I believe, uh, yeah, is oh. his name. And and so I wasn't planning on asking about flow states, but I think it's so. That's so interesting to see. As a runner, have you experienced flow yourself? And, and it, like, at what point do you think flow kicks in?
0: Yeah, you know, I I first experienced flow when I was playing cricket. And cricket's a bit like – well, it's our equivalent of baseball in which you – but there you you are on bats for, for a long time. And I remember all my best performances. I don't remember what happened. I was, and I didn't know how I got there. I can, I can remember one game where I went in, and I batted for an hour and scored a lot of runs and came out an hour later, and I didn't remember one thing. I don't remember one thing of what happened in that hour, except when I went was out, I was dismissed. And, and the other times where I really batted well, it was exactly the same. Now, I only ever achieved that once in running, and that was when I ran my best marathon. And the last 10Ks, I can't remember a thing about it. I just uh, it was just went by with a, in a flash, and I don't remember anything about it. So I was in flow, and Mikhail Czech Michai, I met him at Stanford in about 2000, and I'm sure he won't remember it, but you can mention my name to him, and and he's the expert on flow, he's the world authority on flow, and he, it's you would be well advised to ask him how do people get into flow? That's the key, because as I've indicated. If it's life-threatening, if you're surfing a 60-foot wave, you are in flow. The minute you you catch the wave, you get into flow. If you're coming down a mountain in in skiing or or snowboarding, you are in flow because otherwise you die.
1: <laughs> well, and I think well to 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 kind of to to correlate the two to to Tim. I mean, you wrote the law of running, and he just published the flow the running the flow state or flow the you know flow state mm-hmm. of running. I'm not I'm not getting the title right but he no. just published a book on the flow of running and you published the Lord running. And, and, and since kind of going down this, I got back on, I've been get, getting back on my mountain bike and you're absolutely right. You know, flying downhill and, and letting off the brakes a little bit is definitely a, it definitely achieves it. And you mentioned this. And and I told you at the outset, I was a rugby player and I played in the front row back in the days <laughs> before yeah. I, was, I was a hooker back in the days before. Now the referees, you know, you kind of have to set, you kind of have to set and yeah. touch your opposing yeah. prop. And, and so I was a hooker back, you know, 20 years ago and we used to call our own uh, scrums in from a meter mm-hmm. out. And, and, you know, man, yeah. you talk about uh, pushing yourself to the limits. I mean, I didn't realize, yeah. you know, looking back on it now, I didn't realize how, how gnarly and, and dangerous that was. Um, exactly. It, 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 you can, can relate to that. Now, the other thing I want to talk to you about is your book Waterlogged. Um, I read it a couple mm-hmm. of years ago and helped develop a course on it for personal trainers and what is the issue with hydration in sports? Do you think that the recreational athletes are overhydrating themselves?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you're exercising for less than an hour, you don't need fluids during exercise. So anyone, when I see these people running and they're carrying their water bottles and they're a little sturdy or overweight, I just think, you know, just chuck the water away. And, and often it's not water. It's a, it's a glucose-containing drink. And there's actually more energy in the drink than there is in the that they're going to expend during the exercise, and <laughs> so they don't they don't understand that little problem. But you you don't need to hydrate if you're exercising under an hour. It's absolutely unnecessary. The problem was that the industry decided in nineteen in the nineteen nineties that they wanted everyone to believe that if you sweated out one bead of sweat, you were going to die of dehydration. And they wanted to target the gym recreational market to make sure that they drank lots of their product. And they were very successful in getting this dehydration message out. So literally everyone thought that if you go and exercise for five minutes in the gym, uh, one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to die if you don't drink or you're going to underperform. So you better start drinking immediately. And there's, there's absolutely no science behind that. All it did was increase the sales of their product. And secondarily, when you applied that knowledge to people running five or six-hour marathons, in which they were running very slowly, and they were being told to drink as much as tolerable, well, they, they did do that, and they drank so much that some of them died as a result. And that, that was a tragedy because it was iatrogenic in a sense that the industry caused the problem.
1: And, and, and do you think, I mean, and this gets back to our discussion that we started with, because you don't need – and what's the reaction? Well, the question I want to ask, let me back that up a second, is what's the reaction? If, if I drink a glucose drink before exercise, doesn't that actually limit my body's ability to burn fat?
0: Absolutely, because you'll spike your insulin and, and then you'll, you have to burn the carbohydrate. You see, humans are not designed to ingest a lot of carbohydrate, particularly carbohydrate that is rapidly assimilated in the bloodstream. And your bloodstream has only got five grams of carbohydrate in it, but then you take a drink, a 10% solution, and you drink 500 ml, and that's going to give you 50 grams of carbohydrate. So that's going to be 50 grams at least, and that's got to try and get into the bloodstream, which only allows five grams. So you've got to get rid of that 50 grams as quickly as possible. And so you hypersecrete insulin to try and drive it out of the bloodstream. And and it, it absolutely is a crisis for the body. So, but then the insulin prevents you from burning the the fat because you have to burn carbohydrates to try and get rid of those 50 grams. Whereas if you fat adapted, you you would immediately start burning fat and you wouldn't need anything else because the fat can sustain almost any exercise that you would like to do. As a, as a recreational athlete, there are some limitations. So if you're running a an 800 meters, or perhaps a mile, maybe you, you do need to burn a lot of carbohydrate, and maybe the fat won't get you through. But once you go beyond an hour or two, or if you're a recreational athlete, fat's all you need.
1: And I think that's so interesting because you do see all this stuff pushed, and, and especially the past few years, you're seeing all these gels and, you know, gels and lollipops and all that. And is that just all overkill? Is that come again, come back to marketing?
0: Absolutely. And, and I'm responsible because. Myself and two other athletes in South Africa developed the first gel. We called it FRN for the three of us, Fordyce, Rose, and Noakes. And that was the first gel in the world. And we promoted it for, particularly for running ultramarathons. And now all three of us are insulin resistant, <laughs> and we had to cut the carbs in order to get thin again. And so we are terribly embarrassed by what we caused on the rest of the world
1: well I think it, I mean again it comes back to to initially what you said I mean the whole process of, of i think of living is we learn and we, yeah. we we evolve with that now one of the things in, in you know what, what's the book that you you recently released you did you, you said comes out this week
0: uh, called law of nutrition the law of, challenging Go ahead. law of nutrition challenging conventional dietary beliefs and it it's a story of what's happened to me over the last six years since I converted to a high fat diet and the way I got excommunicated from my profession and from my university. And it was my fight back. And so we had to go to court for, for over for 25 days, over two years. And it's the story of that, but it's more about the science of nutrition and where we got it all wrong and why the high-carbohydrate diet has no science behind it, whereas there's plenty of science behind the high-fat diet. So a, it's, it's, a lovely, it's a lovely story about, about one man being targeted by his profession and by his university and being demonized and, uh, and thrown to the wolves, so to speak. And yet we fought back. And because I had some unbelievable legal, legal help and lots of support from really important people, we managed to show that I was right and the other people were wrong.
1: And I think this kind of ties in because, I mean, how does that play in? How does does the diet that, that you promote play in with the paleo diet? Because in the States here, we see a huge uh, promotion of like the paleo diet and the ketogenic diet. And it's a lot of, I think it really is shaking, shaking the foundations of a lot of people believe about nutrition.
0: Oh, Absolutely. And it is the way of the future This. There's so much evidence that humans evolved by eating this diet, and we we de-evolved <laughs> when we started eating cereals and grains, and then eating more carbohydrates. And the the medical consequences have been catastrophic, as we discussed earlier. And and we detail all of that in the book. And so that, the, the, go ahead. And the the thing there are two big things that are going to happen in the next two or three years. Firstly, in a few months' time company in San Francisco called Berta Health released their one year data on showing that you can reverse type 2 diabetes or you can put it into remission on this diet and that is catastrophic for the pharmaceutical industry which tries to say that you treat diabetes with insulin so this intervention shows that if you eat a high fat diet you, you can get off insulin wow. so 97% of diabetic patients using insulin were off insulin within one year of being on this diet, or they were either off or reduce their diet, their insulin dramatically, and a large proportion of those people no longer needed any treatment, and that's key because medicine tells us that diabetes is an irreversible disease, and that you're always going to happen. You're just going to need to to inject more insulin and take more medication, and Verta Health in San Francisco have shown the opposite. That's the first thing that's going to happen. That's going to shake up medicine because Insulin resistance is a driver of so many diseases that if we can manage it with diet and not through pharmaco- pharmacological products, that's huge. And the second being one is my prediction is that in 2020, the U.S. dietary guidelines are going to change. They're going to say we got it all wrong. There never was any evidence that we should eat a low-fat diet. Guys, you can eat as much fat as you like, and that's going to reverse your diabetes or it's going to control your diabetes and prevent you getting sick. So those are going to happen within the next three years and and that there's a game changes
1: those will be significant big big changes now as we wrap up here uh, tim you're still at, at your age you said you're almost 70 correct
0: yeah and you're yeah.
1: St- and you're still running and exercising on a regular basis correct
0: yeah indeed um, i'm doing more gym now I'm, i've joined crossfit and i'm really enjoying it it's uh, miraculous what they found wrong with my body <laughs> from <laughs> all the running And the pain that we have to go through to try and sort out the muscle imbalances and the muscle tears and aches and so on. But I think in two or three years' time, I'm really going to be healthy (laughs) because I'm combining my running. I continue to run, but I'm doing this this, also this muscle-building work. And I think once you go into your late 60s, you want to die healthy you better be doing your gym work as well i mean so you think
1: strength training plays a key role you know as you get it and is yeah. it safe to strength train in the 60s and 70s going into your 70s
0: absolutely absolutely And it's not only that it's essential and, and but you need good people to work with you and fortunately i've got good people showing me how to do it and they're very careful of my sixty-eight-year-old weak body.
1: <laughs> and, and see, I, I'm a I'm a big fan of CrossFit. You know, sometimes CrossFit gets a bad rap, but it's never it's never the tool, um, Tim. In my opinion, it's never a tool. It's always the application. And if you yeah. find, if you found some good coaches who really take their time to understand your needs and modify the program, then I think it's going to be a, a marvelous uh, fitness program for you.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, uh, the people I use are, are really highly trained. And I, and I think you see there is a movement against CrossFit because it promotes a low carb diet, and many organisations in in America believe that that physical trainers should not be giving dietary advice. And so there's, I know all about the story. It's the same people who targeted me are also targeting CrossFit for pretty much the same reasons. They. They want the dietary advice to come from the professionals who are controlled by industry to make sure that they never say sugar's bad for you. And that that's unfortunately one of the keys. That If you have an organization that says sugar's bad for you, that organization is going to be targeted by those industries.
1: And it probably has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that the sugar industry is one of the biggest uh, money contributors to uh, certain congressmen in, in uh, American politics.
0: That would possibly be a factor.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. no. There's no correlation at all. Well, Tim, I really appreciate your time. Now, can you tell me a little bit about what, what you're doing with the Noakes Foundation? Because I think the Noakes Foundation is what you set up to try to promote uh, your dietary advice. Is that correct?
0: Yes, indeed. So when we wrote The Real Meal Revolution, it became one of the best sellers in the history of South Africa. And I've always invested any money I make from writing into trusts. And so we formed – so that – The law of running and so on, all that money went into a trust that funds a senior researcher at the University of Cape Town. When we got the money from the Real Meal Revolution, we said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to put this into a trust to promote studies of the diet. And in addition, we have an intervention program in the poorest communities in South Africa because we're trying to show that they are the least healthy because they eat the worst foods and that actually you can eat this high-fat diet and on relatively little money. So many people in impoverished communities can afford to eat much better, but we have to provide the food for them. And the knowledge that you can't live on chips and Coca-Cola and ice cream and wheat and and maize, which is what happens in South Africa, bread, maize, Coca-Cola, that's kind of the diet, and that's a killing diet. So we're promoting the idea that you can eat High protein, high fat diets at a, at a, an affordable cost for many, many South Africans.
1: Well, and that that's that's tremendous to see that you're tra- taking, you are taking your your knowledge and you are taking you know the resources that you generate from your information and putting it out there to to good use. I mean, I, I think a lot of people would be tempted just to put it in their pocket and go enjoy mm-hmm. a good holiday, but I think it you know, it seems like you are giving back to the community.
0: Yeah, indeed, because I knew I'd be criticised. You see, oh, you write books just to make money? Which I've never done. I've always Invested the money elsewhere. I'm, I am truly an altruist and and I don't never did science for my own benefit I did it for to try and help the communities
1: All right Well, Tim, I really appreciate your time and, and I know it's uh, you know, we're, we're sitting here We're talking uh, across the world and and but I've really you know when I've read articles read read your information and read a uh, red waterlogged I really appreciate the information that you share and I wanted to Expose your knowledge and your work to to the listeners of all about fitness So I want to thank you for your time and thank you for the work that you're doing
0: Thanks, Pete. It's been a privilege to be with you on your program. Thanks so much, and thanks for what you do to promote these ideas. So imagine getting done with
1: that interview and that conversation and walking a couple hundred meters away and going into Disneyland for the day. And yes, you know Disneyland was one of those places where you know you, if you have, when you have young kids, again, I recorded this a few years ago, so my kids, I think, were five and three. They're, my kids were five and three at the time. And those are the years that you want to take your kids to Disneyland. Because watching their eyes light up, watching them react to everything is absolutely amazing. And and actually, after that, after spending two days at Disneyland, I flew from Disneyland to Moscow, Russia, where I did a couple workshops in Moscow. So it was a very interesting few days indeed to go from the excesses of, of Disneyland in, in Southern California to being in Moscow, Russia. And this was uh, early November of 2017. And, yeah, it gets cold there. Anyway, it, it, it just... When you go to Disneyland, you see that. You see the danger that that our nutrition, that the Western diet has on people, right? You can walk around Disneyland and it's, it's sad. I mean, that's the tough part about going to a large public area about that. And that's even before COVID. That's when we could go out and be in large public gatherings. Is you see people out there who are just unhealthy. And, and the information I put out about exercise, about fitness, isn't about being skinny. If you're listening to the All About Fitness podcast, you know that. I don't put out this information about being skinny, about having to look a certain way. It's all about having a healthy lifestyle. And in this case, it's about managing a healthy body weight. Because eating too much, that's the reason why I played the quote at the beginning. Food can be addictive. High sugary food, high fat food can be very addictive. Sugar can have the same impact on our brain as drugs like cocaine and heroin. It all comes down to dopamine and serotonin. Those are the, the, the neurotransmitters that help us feel good. And I wanted to run this interview with Tim Noakes again. One, I was kind of having a little bit of fun, staying consistent with the South African theme that I started with my friend, Fabio Kamana. But number two is as we go into a new year, as we go into 2021, I want you thinking smart. I want you thinking differently. I want you thinking holistically about your approach to nutrition. There are many different ways to approach nutrition out there. And I don't advocate any one way because we are all different individuals. And everybody's gonna to respond to a nutrition plan differently. But what I want you to do is I want you to have information so you can make the best decision for your needs. There'll be information to Dr. Noakes's work down below. You can follow his work, you can buy one of his books if you wanna learn more about that. If you wanna support the podcast, there are ways that you can do that. I ran a couple ads to do that. If you support the podcast by buying a piece of content, you'll be eligible to receive extra content or bonus content that I'll be producing throughout 2021 and beyond. You can reach out to me, Pete at Pete That's Pete at Pete McCall And as always, thank you for stopping by. And I certainly look forward to having you join me for future episodes of all about fitness.